Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show, we have Dr. Valencia Bell. Dr. Valencia Bell is a visionary founder of schools who pioneers a transformative approach to standardized test preparation. With a commitment to infusing character elements into K-12 and collegiate curricula, she prepares students not only for academic success, but also for life's challenges. Driven by the belief in universal access to information, Dr. Bell champions goal-based learning, aiming beyond score improvement to foster positive youth outcomes and reduce dropout rates. Her work creates confident leaders who view college attendance not as an if, but as a when and where. Hello, Dr. Valencia. Welcome Hello. to the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for taking time out for this. Oh, and thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it since I received the email. So thank you for the gracious invitation. It's my pleasure. Dr. Valencia, so do you always wanted to, growing up, did you always plan to, you know, get into test prep coaching or teaching in general? Or how did that transition happen? Not at all. <laughs> I'm a biomedical engineer by trade. This all happened because I used to run track and I started running track when I was five years old and I was good enough to be on the junior Olympic team for the United States. So I started running very, very young at the age of five. And so in middle school, I was running with the varsity girls. And I had a coach who told me that I couldn't run with the varsity girls anymore if I could not be recruited. And I didn't know what that was. I mean, I was like, recruited to what? I don't know. I just want to run and have fun. And he said, there's this test you have to take, and it's really hard. And I'm just going to take you to the college. We'll let you take it, and let's see how you do. So here I am at 12 years old, taking the ACT without any prep whatsoever, and I was blessed to make a very, very good score on my first time. I made a 26 the first time I took it without any test prep at all. And so when I got to high school, that gave me the opportunity to actually be recruited by about 71 D1 schools because I was already an NCAA early academic qualifier. What that taught me was the school that I would have attended in my community um, in my zip code was a poor performing school. And the whole trajectory of the schools were poor performing from the middle school to elementary all the way through high school. So I, my parents drove way across town for me to be able to attend an international baccalaureate school, which I never would have been able to be accepted to without that score. And so the trajectory of my educational experiences all came from early testing and having that opportunity that had a score that had surpassed the benchmark that they were looking for, not just to be accepted to college, but for scholarships. So for me, when I'm 52 years old, so this happened almost 39 years ago, my scholarship aggregate was $3 million. And I was able to take home 400000 of that tax-free. Students that I'm working with now, if they start early and they begin to start this test prep process earlier, they are actually becoming millionaires from the refund money that's available for students. Um, I'll give you an example. So COVID in the United States gave 
states the ability to spend funds that were called ESSER funds, E-S-S-E-R. So my state got $900 million extra dollars to help students who were suffering from the digital divide because they couldn't get to school because schools had been closed down. Additional scholarship money was made available um, for to enhance Wi-Fi. So all of those things were put in place. So I tell students now, there's no limit to the amount of scholarship money that can be made, whether you are mainland U.S. or whether you're an international student. I'm helping students right now in Nigeria get ready for the U.S. college application cycle right now. And those students will all have full-ride scholarships. When I say full-ride, I mean tuition is paid for, room and board is paid for, travel stipends to get back and forth to home. Their books are paid for. And they have internships for the summer, so they will probably graduate early because they can just stay, finish in four years, take extra classes, and they can start um, in their you know terminal professional careers. So that's how all that started. At no point in my little 12-year-old mind did I think that I was going to have a multi-million dollar global test prep company. By no means. Absolutely not. Never crossed my mind. I was playing with Barbie dolls and running track. Got it, Dr. Valencia. You said, you know, uh, all this happened because you were running track. How did that uh, so transition happen? So, so what happened to your running career? And where did, the, like, what was the transition from running to this? So, to be quite honest, Running was not the primary reason that I attended college. It wasn't. I at no point did my father was an athlete. He was a professional athlete. At no point was I ever thought of as an athlete who only would be able to attend school through athletics. Um, Very early on, my father taught me that athletics was like a nice necklace (laughs) That was put on top of a nice suit of education because anything can happen. And to be quite honest, how my career ended, I had, I was running. um, I still had eligibility. I had qualified to go to the Olympics as a hurdler and actually hurt myself in the qualifying race and wasn't able to compete at that level, but I was in graduate school. So people were like, what were you doing? I was like finishing another degree. So You know, for me, I tell people that many times athletes have not self-identified. And so their entire identity is wrapped up in their sport or like their number. And when they lose that, they lose sight of the totality of who they are as a holistic person. I was just blessed that I was surrounded by a supportive family and friend network who made sure that I understood that I was so much more than jumping hurdles and the long jump and running the 400. So when it was time for me to put sports down, it was like taking off a jacket and walking inside of the house. You know, I had done the things that I wanted to do. I had no regrets. Um, Paris is coming up in 2024. I may just go just to see some of the people I trained. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you just, you're grateful for the opportunities that you had in sports, but I'm really blessed that I did not have to depend on sports to finance my education. If I had, 
I think I would have made a lot of decisions based solely on finances. Um, when I think about some of the people who went to school with me that didn't graduate on time, that left college because they were like, I need to go pro now because I'm doing very well and never came back and finished. Um, I just really feel like, you know, sometimes you just, you wonder why God blesses you the way that you do. But I started school at such a young age. I was 12 years old in the ninth grade. I was almost a junior in college by the time I turned 17. My father and I were just talking about it before the podcast. He was like, your mother and I didn't know what to do. I mean, you were an adult. I was doing research at the NIH. I I, I, I couldn't even drive. <laughs> but that's common now to see students get homeschooled and graduate from college when they're 14, 15 years old. You know, 35 plus years ago, that was very uncommon for a student to start middle school, you know, when they were six or seven years old or high school at 12 or college at the age that I did. So for me, like I said, it was just it. it the, I think things come full circle. And I think many times there's a proverb that says when you are ready to learn the lesson, the teacher appears. And I really feel like in my life, when I was ready to make transitions, mentors appeared, opportunities appeared at times when I was ready to receive those. So for that, I've always been very grateful. Wow. That's an amazing story. And the way you described about uh, sport just being that ornament, great stuff. Yeah, totally get that. You know, because um, I've spoken to a lot of people, or at least a few of them, you know, uh, for whom sport was one of the most important, um, you know, things that acted yeah. as a gateway for them to get into good college and stuff like that. But they were good mm -hmm. at uh, test prep anyway, you know, let it be math or something like that. So, and then uh -huh. it was a very easy transition for them. So what was the start of you? So you run an organization called Schools. Yes. Uh, Dr. Valencia, yeah, one of the reasons that we got in touch with you was SAT, ACT, because we were looking at, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who helped others with getting prepped for this. But then you do so much more than that. So before we get into that, um, so what was the idea behind starting this organization, Schools, for you? So Schools, it stands as an acronym. Success can happen out of low scores. And our definition of a low score is a score that does not afford you a full ride scholarship. Our definition of a full ride means tuition is paid, room and board is paid. You have transportation stipends to get back and forth to your hometown. You have money for miscellaneous expenses that come up with college. For example, if you get accepted to an honor society and then you have to turn around and pay $200 and you don't have it, so you can't get your honor cord and you can't pay $100 to go to the luncheon to receive your certificate. We want students to be able to engage and to thrive when they get to college. And so we have a real delineation between students and scholars. Like we explain um, our mantra is skillful intention and downstream focus. I mean, there are lots of people that take the ACT and the SAT but they're not skillful in the score that they have. They may be one or two points away from millions of dollars of scholarships, but they haven't done enough research to find out that they needed to take the test just one more time. 
and it can make all the difference in the world. So that's our definition of a low score. We are a globally certified benefit corporation. So we actually conduct test prep as a matter of social justice. So we are looking to take a student score high enough that they are considered an educational scholar. They're considered available for assistantships. They're considered for early admission to terminal degree programs. Many times students don't understand that they have a 30 on the ACT and a 3.5 GPA. They can be accepted to medical school. They can be accepted to MBA programs. They can be accepted to physical therapy programs. There are so many opportunities and it comes right out of that juncture between high school and their first year of college. They're accelerated programs, but those programs are fully funded. And I see students who don't do the research and they don't do the due diligence and they don't know, and they end up with $700,000 in debt, maybe $187,000 from undergraduate and another $500,000 from medical school. And many times if they're in their professional programs, they cannot work during that time. So then they have to take additional loans out for housing and food. So they're trying to focus on their career and so it's it's a catch-22, and it's so bittersweet for them because now they have the degree, and they're looking at paying six to $8,000 a month plus interest for the next 30 years of their life, which could all have been eradicated with one score. So what we like to do is get the scores high enough that grandparents don't have to you know, worry about second mortgaging their homes or giving their entire nest eggs away for their grandchildren, that parents don't have to worry about doing the same thing. And ultimately, that students don't have to take out loans to be able to go to school. Great stuff. Great stuff, Dr. Valencia. You said uh, you're a benefit corporation. Can you explain what a benefit corporation means? Yes. So benefit corporations, it is a global movement. Um, You would have to be certified by completing a BIA assessment. It's called a BIA assessment. Um, That assessment gives Be Global the opportunity to see if you really do put purpose before profit. So benefit corporations have as their mission and vision to actually do good things. So Ben and Jerry's is a benefit corporation. Patagonia, there, there are hundreds of thousands of them all over the world. We were blessed to be the first BIPOC female-led benefit corporation in the state of Alabama, and actually one of four benefit corporations in the state of Alabama. But what it did for us is it's almost like the gold standard when people are looking like when I'm doing international test prep, they can go on and look up our certification through Be Global and say, yes, we've gone through all of her financials. We've gone through all of her methodologies. Everything that she says that she will do and guarantees, she will do. So that's why we became a benefit corporation. We want people to know our mission is to help, not to hurt, with test prep. Go ahead, Dr. Valencia. I've, you know, usually people who run test prep academies or test prep businesses usually start off as a tutor who helps students with SAT, ACT test preps, be it verbal or quants or math or whatever it is, right? What was your starting point? And where did you get this idea of doing it this way and not the conventional way? There must have been some story or a trigger point. Can you 
Uh, yes. Sherry does that. So there are several trigger points. Um, for one, we use test prep as a matter of workforce development. In the United States, um, people really don't realize. I'll use nursing as an example. In order for a student to advance to upper division, regardless of the fact that they may have straight A's in all of their lower level classes, they must have an 18 on the ACT in order to advance to upper division, which is like advancing to candidacy. Many times students will apply to nursing programs who have been doing nursing for years, but they never knew they had to have an 18 on the ACT. So now, even though they have progress to the point they should be able to have patient care experiences until they get an 18, they can't be nurses. And there's so many different opportunities that are missed because people do not equate test prep with college and career readiness. I mean, true college and career readiness. If you want to be an engineer and you're asking like trigger points, when I decided that I wanted to be an engineer, my mentor was like, your STEM score needs to be a 24 and your overall score needs to be higher than a 24. I was given that information when I was 11 years old. I was also given the information that there was a such thing as the ACT or the SAT and that I didn't need to be afraid of it, but it was more like a doorway that I had to walk through. And the ACT and the SAT that was the doorknob that opened the door for college for me, which allowed me to walk into the career of biomedical engineering. So I didn't start off as a tutor who was like, wow, you know, the U.S. test prep market is $70 billion yearly, which it is. That wasn't my goal at all. I literally grew up in a neighborhood where all of the schools that I would have attended were poor performing. They, there would have been no opportunity for me to take AP classes. I would have never been in an international baccalaureate program, but because I did get the opportunity to test early, I was able to transfer. And I tell people all the time that disenchantment is what caused me to be a disruptor in the test prep industry. There were in my neighborhood, there were hundreds of students who were smarter than me who were more gifted athletically, who were never given those opportunities because they did not have a test score. And so when you look at the trajectory of those people's lives, like that's what I, I just recently graduated with my doctorate from the University of Southern California, but on Trojans, I had to put that out there. But when I wrote about it in my doctoral um, defense, Literally, the difference in students who had an ACT 18 who could advance to becoming a higher level in nursing and those that had to stay as certified nursing assistants in the course of 10 years in a net analysis, like a cost analysis, that was a $500,000 difference in income potential from one wow. test score because it, it was a barrier that could not be crossed. And so when you look at these test scores, particularly ACT and SAT, in certain career paths, students who are not allowed to test early, who are not allowed to prep early and prep strong, truly do suffer. They become what I call test prep marginalized, and that's a completely different marginalization. To have a really good grade point average 
and not have a commensurate score to match that grade point average, I actually call it the Bell Method of Academic Currency. So we teach people that in the same way that your FICO score or your credit score in the United States, it buys you certain things at different interest rates. Many times students are not taught that the ACT score has that same effect. The interest rate does vary. They're like, well, why do you say that? Well, if you can't apply for a federal loan that has a fixed rate and you need money to finish school, you're going to have to take a commercial personal loan. That would be based on your credit. And if your credit score is not good or you have no credit at all, I see students taking out personal loans for school at 29, 30% interest oh because they're just God. trying to survive. No one has taught them how to thrive in school. And so I feel like, you know, I've taken that on as my personal mantra is just making sure that people, that anyone who wants to attend college can actually afford to attend college. And that, that can happen no matter where you are in the world. You have to do the research up front to find out how much college you can buy with your grades and your scores. Wow. Thank you for taking the example of nursing because that's a, that's a domain that never gets spoken about Ever. in the, you Ever. know, in at least in the space of SAT or ACT. There's one thing that they have to, they need to have a score of 18 yes. on the ACT. Yes. But uh, I want to go a little, uh, you know, forget 18. Now you're saying they don't even know that there is a test called as ACT and they need to take that. Is that correct? Or they That's don't know that they're... Oh, I'll give wow. you an okay. example. So in the United States, before No Child Left Behind, many students were not required to take the ACT or the SAT. It was not connected to their graduation. And globally, right. students can graduate from a primary school without ever having taken the ACT or SAT. They can take their end of course test. They can take some of the international tests, but it's not a necessity for graduating from high school. Here's why that becomes a problem. You can be accepted to college right now, test optional, where you're, you're only looked at from the strength of your essays and from your academic performance. However, most of the scholarships that will help you to pay for school and to graduate debt-free are test score dependent. So as a senior in high school, finding out, like I can give you a perfect example. I had a student that we assisted to get accepted to MIT. She's an international student. And I explained to her, I was like, being accepted to a school that costs $90,000 a year for tuition alone, what's the plan? for you to come out of MIT without $500,000 worth of debt. And she said, I never really thought about it. I just thought that that's something I would just have to do in order to attend MIT. And then I showed her because she was a referral um, for graduate programs, but I didn't work with her with undergraduate. And I said, here's where you, the score you made. You were two points away from all of that debt being paid for. So now you're in a situation where you have to have graduate school paid for because you honestly, in all of the financial tributaries that poured into that young girl, no one was going to be able to come up with another half a million dollars 
for her to get her master's degree. And to me, that's the greatest tragedy because ACT release release tests online that students can use if they can't have access to high quality, cost-effective test prep. SAT has release tests. There are times that you can take the ACT, like um, you can take it in April, you can take it in June and December where you can actually pay a fee and you can get your actual test back and your results. That's a game changer. You know exactly what you missed. So I just think that we globally, need to have more of a return on expectation from the money we're investing. Many times people are looking at return on investment and they're only expecting to get a one or two point increase or maybe a 50 point increase on the SAT. Our score increases for my company average five to 10 points on the ACT, 100 to 200 points on the SAT. And we tell parents and students all the time, we raise scores 10, five to 10 times the national average of the U.S. test prep vendors at a tenth of the cost in a fraction of the time. It takes us five weeks, whereas many of the national test prep vendors, you will be in prep three times a week for six to 12 months with no score increase guarantee, with classes not taught by certified educators. I am an ACT certified educator and ACE. and for the money that's being invested globally, I mean, in the United States, it's a $70 billion a year industry. What's wrong? What's happening? Students should be in public school who are able to take, they get, they get test prep for free through K-12 education. Why are those scores not equating to full ride scholarships? And it's because you can just be, I tell kids all the time, you can be in the right direction and veer 1% off. But if you veer 1% off every day for 30 days, you're 30% off at the end of the first month. If you continue to be 30% off every quarter, you may not even be in the same, you, you could literally make a 360 degree turn by being off every month for 12 months. And that's what I honestly see with students. At some point they begin to focus more on their academic GPA and AP and IB, more so on preparing for those tests so that they are where they need to be. Why is that an issue? If you were going to take a test for driving, you would never allow a student to use your vehicle without telling them how to start the car. And yet we let students graduate from K-12 education globally without telling them how to start their careers. Got it, Dr. Valencia. So you said, uh, you know, they're focusing more on their academic GPA, which is their, uh, you know, AP and the K-12 and all that. But don't you think, isn't that helping them eventually with ACT and SAT? Not necessarily. Uh, because, oh, Not okay. necessarily. And let me give you an example. So the ACT and the SAT all have a set amount of information, of content that they're being tested on. When we are doing test prep, literally the majority of the test prep for ACT is eighth grade material. So students who are 11th graders, it's not that they don't know the content. They haven't seen the content maybe six, seven, eight years. So if they're taking an ACT math test and I give them what I call the stack question. So I give them a rectangle with a circle on the inside of it. And I say, take the area outside of the circle 
but inside of the rectangle on a time test where you only have 60 seconds per question and it takes you five minutes to remember a formula that you learned in the fifth grade, that student could have straight A's in calculus and come out with horrible ACT math score, even with a calculator. And so many times students are not zeroing in and focusing on studying the content that is actually on the test. So we start test prep in third grade. So it's not uncommon for me to have a nine-year-old outperform a 12th grader because a nine-year-old has no fear. A nine-year-old is going to do exactly what you tell them to do. If you say mark A, B, C, D, E, they'll mark A, B, C, D, E. An 11th or 12th grader has already had so many experiences in the education system that their, what I call educational innocence is gone. I can see students and I say, gosh, you're going to do really good in ACT math. And they'll say, no, I'm not because I'm not good in math. I'm like, what makes you think you're not good in math? Well, I didn't do well and I didn't do well. And they have all these instances of contrived failure. When in all actuality, any entrepreneur will tell you, you have to fail many, many times in prototyping before you get an MVP. So, you know, I read a lot. And so like books like Brave, Not Perfect and books like um, there's a book right now about a school globally where this hedge fund leader literally left Wall Street and said, I am not making impact and took all of his money and moved to a third world country and started a school. And now that whole area has a middle class. They have affordable housing because all of these things stem from having an educated populace. And so we have to do a better job globally of making students understand, yes, we want you to make good grades, but can you critically think? Can you solve problems? And that's really what the ACT is about. It's it's a thinking man's test. It's a test of, of content and timing. If you don't know the right content, no matter how much time you're given, you're going to get the questions wrong. But more right. often than not, what I see is students have no earthly idea about the targeting timing. Like when we are prepping students, we give them about 30 seconds per question in English, reading and science, and we give them about a minute per question in math. Why? Because it's a time test. Why would you study for four hours when you only have 35 minutes for that section? And they don't understand enough about the test. Um, For example, ACT science used to be called scientific reasoning. It's your ability to reason and critically think. It doesn't really have anything to do with what Dr. Johnson might've taught you in biochemistry last week, because everything that you need for that test is inside that test. Uh, I'll make you laugh. So I'll give you an example. How many women are on this podcast? One. Until I give you the definition of what a woman is, that question is unanswerable. Right, right, right. That's ACT science. So they'll ask you a question. How many women on the podcast? Then they'll give you a chart or a graph, or they'll give you an experiment. And it'll say a woman is someone who is 10 feet tall, who's purple. And then you test the hypothesis. I'm not 10 feet tall. I'm not purple. So according to that graph, the answer is there are no women on the podcast. You have to be taught that. 
students jump into the science portion of the ACT without critically thinking about anything. And so it's funny. That's why I can get younger children sometimes to do very well because they're like, oh, no, they didn't tell me what a woman was. Can't answer it. <laughs> Whereas my older students are like, what do you mean? She's a woman. You can see it. She's feminine. You know, they have all these these stereotypes and things inside of their heads. And you're just like. Too much learning has happened already. Precisely. That's not helping the ACT or the SAT. Wow. Okay. So the difference? then you say, uh, yeah, yeah. And you, and it's great that you, you know, start as early as third grade, because when I uh, have asked people, you know, usually the answer is about eighth to ninth grade or eighth grade, right? That's when they kind of start off the journey into the test prep and all that. So when you're saying uh, kids as young as third graders take the test, there is no age restriction as to who can take the test no. is there so no. the way that act deals with that in the united states and globally as well if you are 12 and under then you have to have parental permission to take the test they don't ever want students to be in a situation where, well let's say like a child was at a boarding school and the boarding school headmaster is like you have to take the test you know they do ask right. for parental um, permission, they'll ask for them to send in their birth certificate, their special forms that you have to fill out when you're under the age of 13. But I just want to give you some examples um, in the U.S. So the John Hopkins Center yeah. for Talented Youth begins to track students for their program from standardized test scores in grade two. The Duke yeah. Talented Program, Talented Student Program, it used to be called Duke Tip, has two levels. Um, Duke tip is no longer in existence, but when it was in existence, the highest level, those students were in the seventh grade and they had a 36 on two or more areas by seventh grade. So for you to make a perfect score in two areas, there is absolutely no way that you, that was your first test. You had to have started a lot earlier. You had to have had more than an exposure. You would have to have had some really serious experience with a test to come out with a perfect score in two areas or more. So I remember I had a student who had the highest score in her state and I had to prepare her. I was like, you've made a 27 on the ACT in the seventh grade, but you didn't meet the criteria to be in the highest level of Duke tip. That's in the seventh grade. So we have to make students understand, unfortunately, we don't learn for learn's sake anymore. When you're talking about college and career readiness, particularly the collegiate market, it is a business decision. And if you think about it, if a school is going to invest $225,000 in you as a presidential scholar, they want an alumni who's going to graduate and make an impact. So many times students get left out of the scholarship search because they don't understand especially Ivy League schools, top 20 U.S. schools, they are looking at you as alumni. What are you going to do for the school when you graduate? How can we attract people from your circle of influence because we allowed you to come here? That's not just great. There are close to a million students that apply to Ivy League schools every year and they all have straight A's and they all have perfect scores. They can't all get in. So what is it that makes students different? And when we're trying to talk to students, 
How well-rounded are you? If all you can do is produce straight A's and a perfect score, that's a dime a dozen. That means that's all you focused on. Who are you as a person? How are you going to make the community better? And when you start to look at the essays that are being asked, those are the questions that they're asking. They say, if all you do is tell us about all your accolades and all of your grades, we don't want that. And so literally, I was helping a student who's applying to an Ivy League school right now. And she said, I can't believe you told me to write my essay about being an international hair platter. And I said, let me tell you why you'll get accepted to that school. How many people do you know are in the Lagos International Hair Platting Association who have a 4.0 GPA and a 35 on the ACT? So when you're writing to this school and you and you say, what I bring to the table is all of Nigeria that's within me, the ability to use hair plaiting as an opportunity to extend my culture to your school system, but it also gives me a way to be an entrepreneur. And she was a business major. And literally the selection committee wrote her back and said, what a way to let us know that you're independent, that we feel like you would be able to actually come to our school and thrive, that you already have a thought process about being a part of our entire university community, that you're self-sustaining. And she's competing against someone who wrote an essay that said, I'm a National Merit Scholar and I have a 4.0 and a perfect score. And unfortunately, the person with the perfect score that only has to talk about being a National Merit Scholar, nine times out of 10 won't get in school. It's a proven fact. If you think about rice bowls, right? That's the best way I explain it to students. If you go to a restaurant and rice is served with every dish, what makes the rice bowl special? It And it literally gets like that. I've served on selection committees for scholarships for years. And it's like, here comes another one. They have good grades. They have good scores. And they look just like every other rice bowl. It's not about what you do, but you know how different you are from the crowd or how much you stand out from all of the people. They just don't want the same bunch of people crowding a classroom and then there's no diversity and stuff. No, we know that there is an economic benefit for diversity. Um, That's why so many places are looking for diverse leadership. And I say that, I just want to make sure that people understand. I'm not saying that you should be substandard. If you're substandard, you're not getting admitted to school. I'm talking about students who have met the metrics for excellence and that's all they've ever done. Those students come a dime a dozen. I mean, you can go to any country and you can meet hundreds of students who have done that. But but what where's the student that has exceeded those metrics and still is able to bring all of themselves authentically to the table? That's what schools right. are looking for. Sorry, Dr. Valencia. And, uh, you know, so... Who do you teach? So, for example, uh, I'll just explain what this uh, this question means. There are people who teach through school districts. They type with school districts and then they teach in the classroom, especially those who are not, uh, you know, not, perf- not, not for profit, but whose goal wasn't to 
kind of, you know, like you said, it's a $70 billion industry. I want to, you know, see how I can do it. You know, there are a lot of people that I've met who wanted to make a difference like you do, you know, who wanted to help. And then comes the revenue. So where do you start off from? Where are the majority of your students uh, that come from? So mine has always been mission-based. I used to do this for free. I used to put my videos out on YouTube. <laughs> Other people were like, what about your intellectual property? I was like, oh, intellectual property. I just wanted students to have what they needed. But honestly, right. if I was looking at how I use my MVP, how I use my product and my target customer, my target customer, actually, my niche market is working with students who are two to three grade levels behind in numeracy and literacy and raising their scores above the U.S. collegiate national average. So it's not uncommon for me to have a student in the eighth grade outscore the 12th grade ACT benchmarks. But then when you break that down and you look at their math and reading levels, they might be on a fifth grade reading level and maybe on a sixth grade math level. And people are like, how is that possible? Because if it was necessary for you to make, I know this is going to just blow your mind, but to make the national average in the United States for seniors is making a D in English, an F in math, a D in reading, and an F in science. So overall, it's making a very, very, very low D or high yeah. F on the ACT. So for you math people, let's break that down. That's 49 questions out of 75 in English, 31 questions out of 60 in math, 27 questions out of 40 in reading, and 20 questions out of 40 in science. If you were to do that on an ACT, that's the equivalent of a 21. That's the national average for 12th graders in the U.S. That's the score that can actually get you accepted to college, but it won't pay for it. Wow. Okay. So you get the national average and you don't have to pay is what you're saying. You are eligible for scholarships. Once you start to exceed those national averages, then you start to becoming the difference between, like I say, a student and a scholar. So if you were thinking about the ACT as a regular test, the ACT is not graded like A, B, C, D, E. It's scored. So the more yeah. questions you get correct, the better your score. But if I was to grade it and to make students understand it, if I can get you to go out on a Saturday morning and make an F, you can go to college. If I can get you to move that to a C, you could pay for most of college. If I can get you to move that to a B, you could make money going to college. But if you could come out of the ACT with an A, a 1400 SAT score, an ACT 30, you are now creating a financial estate where you are able to go into your career debt free. With experience, because you're going to have an internship, you're going to have an assistantship, right? And you're able to leverage a lot of other things that they may not be thinking about. So for example, sometimes students are able to study abroad if they have a high enough score. They're able, like I was, to live in the honors dorm and not have a roommate at all, where there's a noise ordinance, where there's no noise happening after eight o'clock. So you have an environment where you don't have to walk across campus to the library to study because everyone in your dormitory is focused on the same thing, doing well. Right. There are some scholarships that come with a four semester 
internship strictly because of your score. That's another example. So my scholarship came with four summer internships. That's how I ended up at my first job, which was working for Dr. Fauci at the National Institute of Health because of an internship that happened the semester before because I had a good score. So we have to help students globally think differently about this test and not just make it look as a gateway, but think of it as a launching pad to the rest of their careers. If they launch correctly, there's no there's there's no limit to where they can soar. And I, I you know, when I show students that if you if you're thinking about angles, if I'm shooting at two degrees versus shooting at eighty degrees, we're going to go to two completely different places. And I think that that is what happens with ACT. The focus has been have you have you taken it, not right. have you achieved the level of score necessary for you to be debt free? That's a different question. Have you achieved the score necessary to create a financial estate? Do you know that you can take the ACT 12 times? Do you know that you can take the SAT as many times as necessary? Do you know when the deadlines are for scholarships for your chosen school? Happens every December. This time of the year is usually most the most gloomy time for someone like me because this is when students find out Oh my gosh, the deadline was December the 1st. Right. There's nothing that I can do. I can prep them to a perfect score, but they won't get an additional dime in scholarship money. You should have known that a year before because you apply to college in the U.S. a year before you go. So students who are in the class of 2025, their applications will go live June 1st of 2024. You should already have your maximum ACT and SAT score by August of your senior year. Because if you're really going to apply for scholarships, you don't have time to think about trying to prep and retest in the fall. You should be focused on early admissions, early decisions. What's the best school for me academically, athletically, and geographically? You should be laser focused, like I'm saying, with skillful intention and downstream focus on these are the six schools. This is what we teach our children. These are the six schools that we're applying to. And instead of increasing the breadth of the number of schools, let's target how deeply you're applying to that school. For example, when I attended the University of Alabama, the president knew my name. The dean of engineering knew my name. The person in charge of housing knew my name. The person in charge of scholarships knew my name, all because I took the time with my father. We wrote letters to those people because this is my home. This is where I was going to live and give five years of my life. Students don't think about that. They're like, I'm just grateful they accepted me. Okay, now what? How can you make an impact in a community you know nothing about? Where are you going to get your hair done? Where are you going to meet people from your same ethnicity? Where are you going to meet people with your same intersectionality, your same interests? Some people have never even been to the school to visit. Their first time visiting the campus is when they move in their freshman semester. And they don't realize if they transition well, there are a new set of scholarships that come out every January. So they're freshman scholarships. They're sophomore scholarships. It was like Christmas for me every August and every January because I knew I was going to get another check. 
It's probably why I've been in school for most of my adult life. Some <laughs> other things as well. But, you know, like people are like, you like honestly didn't have to pay for school. No one has to pay for school. We choose not to make those skillful, intentional steps. And when we don't make those steps, they become missteps. And missteps lead to financial misfortune. This is definitely a very unique, you know, way of putting it. SAT and ACT is not about just getting into a college. It's not about just getting an admission. It's about, as you said, you know, start off with a financial, you know, asset or, you know, going debt free. I think the goals are way higher the way you look at it. And the way others, most of the others look at it, just about to get into college or something like that. There's another thing that I want to uh, touch upon is you said, you know, um, students need to have a high score ready by August of their senior year. Yes. But they can have the same as early as they can. Yes. You start prepping students uh, as lower as third grade. Yes. And uh, let's say you hit a high score when you're your eighth grade, right? Which is a lot earlier than your uh, senior year. So is that going to hold good for until the time you're going to get into college? I'm so glad you asked that question. SAT and ACT scores never expire. It's not like the GRE. The GRE has a five-year cap window. If you were in the third grade and you made a perfect 36 on the ACT, some college would ask you if you wanted to start. Like... Many times students miss out on dual enrollment opportunities or early college opportunities. Um, In my program, we have students who graduate from community college or two-year college before they graduate from high school because they have the sports in middle school. Wow. And so now they can start to, I mean, it's a commitment. Don't get me wrong. Like they have to go to night school and weekend school while they're in high school. But if you look up, I mean, I have several students who are like that. So let me give you an example. If you graduated from a two-year college, at the same time that you graduated from high school, now your four-year scholarship covers your last two years of undergraduate and your master's. So you've achieved three degrees in the time that most right. people achieve one degree. Right. So if you, and you said from earning potential, now you're graduating as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old master's prepared right. student. That's a six-figure income. I mean, I, I did it with my niece. She was she had two degrees by 22. She started taking I just love it how you equated, you know, to the income part and the money part. That's what is exactly not being spoken. Everything is, uh, you know, everything else is being spoken about except the money part. Because I think somewhere, uh, I wonder where money became uh, not a great thing to talk about while studying or... Probably they're just conveniently hiding it. Now, you said nobody has to pay for college. No. Now, the scholarships uh, depend on scores or they just have a certain amount of scholarships to give and then beyond which they cannot give no matter how much the students. So let let me explain what I mean by that. So in my opinion, in my methodology, the choice to pay for college is yours. Let me give you an example. So I had a student who made a 31 on the ACT who had straight A's. A 31 is not a bad score because the highest score you can make on the ACT is a 36. But here's the difference. She wanted to go to a school, her first school. I tell students to choose six schools, two schools that are stretch schools that if you get in, 
you're probably surprised and you're probably going to have to make some really tough decisions. Two schools that will take you right like you are. You don't have to do any adjustment. And two schools that would be so just enamored that you decided to choose them that they probably name a dorm after you. You know, like, I don't want to, I don't like that school. I don't want to go there. Maybe it's a school that's at home that's local to you. And you're like, oh, that's going to be like the 13th grade. I don't want to do it. But you still apply to those schools anyway. So let me give you an example with this young lady. So she had made a 31 on the ACT and she had a 4.0 GPA. Her stretch school, their average ACT score for their entering class was a 35. So now you have a choice. First of all, if by some miracle you do get in with your 31, their merit-based scholarships start off at a 34. You have already chosen to pay for school. Right, right. However, that same student's 31 at the the college she actually decided to go to, she chose a school where their merit-based scholarships started at a 28. And if you had a 30 on the ACT, at a 3.5 GPA, it gave her free housing, room and board, tuition, a stipend each month, and an internship at NASA. I cannot make the decision for students. All I do is put them in the best trajectory possible. But ultimately, it's the students and the family's decision. Now, if you take right. that a step further... When we talk about her lower school, like the lowest school, it was a two-year school. She was like, I don't want to go there. Her 31 gave her a full scholarship. It gave her internships. And attending that two-year college gave her a full scholarship at the next two years with any school within her state system. It's called the STARS Articulation System. So when I sat down and I presented that information to her family, I said, I'm not going to stop you from going to your dream school. I just need you to understand that when you graduate from your dream school, you will owe $500,000. Let's go down a tier. If you go to this school, you will not owe anything. You will have four semesters of industry experience, but that internship is not paid, but you at least have the experiences. Does that make sense? However, at the school that you think is the most horrible school ever, you're going to graduate with no debt. You're going to make money because you have far surpassed their presidential scholarship. You can stay at home. So now even the money they would give you for room and board, you now can keep that and put that in your checking account. And this school has free two-year scholarships to all of the schools in your second tier. So by automatically, you will go to the second school in year three and four for absolutely free. So $500,000 worth of debt, no debt, $500,000 in your checking account. What do you think she chose? You would be surprised. What do you think she chose? It would seem like a no-brainer. The the $500,000 in the checking account? She chose to go to her number one school. She got in. It's Ivy. And she graduated with $475,000 thousand dollars in debt she called me the day of graduation in tears she said it didn't make sense to me because i got caught up in the social capital of saying i go to this school it didn't make sense to her until her exit interview with financial aid when they told her six months after your last class and or graduation. Did you hear what I say? Whether you graduate or not, 
six months after you are an active student, you have to start paying your loans back. She had our, unless you want to go to graduate school, like the only way that you cannot pay that back is if you're in another educational institution, right? She said, I owe $5,057 a month on the first of every month. And she had no job. This is unbelievable. Ivy League, Despite Ivy League having educated. Now think about it. You're Ivy League educated. You went to a school based on what you wanted to do, your personal interest. But if your personal interest in graduating from an Ivy League school leaves you unemployable. What's the point of it all? Because that $5,000 plus was due. She ended up having to move back home with her parents. They ended up having to take a second mortgage against their estate to pay off her debt. That pulled a half a million dollars out of their estate. But that's the choice she made. You cannot make choices for students. You can't. All you can do is put them in the best trajectory. And then they have to live with their decisions. It's usually what I call the students. It's probably the first big girl, big boy decision they've ever made. And I tell them all the time, you have to live with this. Your parents are not the one that's making this decision. Because sometimes parents automatically will make the decision that's the best financial decision. But sometimes for that student, it might not be the right geographical place. I'll give you an example of that. I had a student who got a full scholarship to an area that snowed and the student had never seen snow. The student came over and caught the flu because they came over in a windbreaker. They had never seen wool clothing. They didn't do a student visit. They were like, oh, I got the full minority scholarship. Everything is paid for. They got there when they went to visit. When they first got to school, it was nice. The climate was wonderful. It rained a little, but it was doable. By September, it was going to below zero. By November, that student dropped out of school. They got the flu. They got super sick. They got COVID, and they had to go home. They still have to pay (laughs) for all of the bill. He didn't finish school. Didn't even finish the semester. So it you have to do the research. It has to be the right fit academically, if they're an athlete, right. athletically, but at a minimal, geographically, if you've never, it, it works both ways. I see students who say, oh, I want to go to a college that's close to the beach. You know, I want to have, you know, these Zen moments. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so you went to the school close to the beach and you stayed at the beach most of the time. Now let's look at your GPA, Miss 1.0. Got it. Got a doctorship. I just have uh, one more question Sorry. about the scholarship thing, yeah. right? Uh, so you said, you know, there could be colleges that uh, have a cutoff at a certain score yes. for at which a scholarship start could be 28, 31, 34, yes. whatever it is. Now let's say, for example, there's an Ivy League college that has their cut off at 34, and let's say they've got about 100 seats that they can admit for that particular batch. Now, if all the 100 of them score more than 34, are all of them eligible for scholarships? So the school doesn't get paid from any of them. That happens? So this is this oh. is how scholarships work. So do you remember how I told you that schools are made by their alumni? Right, yes. Okay. So I will give you an example. So I graduated from USC, and I went there on full scholarship. There is one alumni who gives, and I won't state his name or their family's name. I mean, they're very prominent and they're very well known. They wanted a dormitory and an environment where BIPOC students could thrive. So they bought a dormitory, 
when you become a right. scholar for them, you get to live in that dormitory. Many people have met their husbands and wives in that dormitory. Everything is paid for. Those are not yeah. full USC full ride scholarships. That's just a person right. who decided they wanted to pay cash for a hundred people that looked like them to go to an Ivy League school. Right. All schools have alumni base. And if you, I'm telling you, I tell students this all the time, opportunity always favors the prepared. A large percentage of the scholarships that I received were because I asked for them. So if you go on the scholarship page of most universities, people stop only at the institutional scholarships, the, you know, the scholarship that's named after the university, the scholarship. But this is why I teach my students. If you go to a college and you look up and the building has a name, it received that name because the person whose name is on that building gave a large donation to the university. Right, right. How many buildings are there on universities? Why are you not asking your dean? Hi. Yes, I am a presidential scholar. However, are there any additional scholarships for people who look like me who are doing what I'm doing? What do I mean by that? I All of my intersectionalities. I am a second generation immigrant from St. Eustatius in the Caribbean. I am a black female who grew up in the South. If you want to put that box on me, I am a STEM degree seeking student. If you want to put that box on me, use every label there is and say, okay, well, how many scholarships do you have for all of these labels? And there's money for all of it. So when I say students choose to pay for school, you want to max out the institutional scholarships, but then you want to go as deep as possible into the scholarship pool at that particular university. There are scholarships for leadership. There are scholarships for scholarship. This, this is why I tell people, follow the ship. Don't, don't, don't get outside of the ship. Don't try to do something outside of the established institution. Right. But look at all of the, there's assistance ships. Why do you think all those things end with ship? It's a safe haven for you to take you somewhere. Get all of that. Ask for it. Hi, do you have an opportunity for me to do this if I'm interested in it? That's why now, just coming back to what we talked about when I was talking about the hair braider, that school during their cultural fest gave her additional money as a scholarship to do a whole exhibition on hair plaid. Wow. Who better to do it? They don't have to pay some expert to come over. They have someone within their student body who does that. I've had students who were in interior design. I said, go go to the college president. You see that they're doing construction. They're building a new dormitory. They're building a new student center. I'm an interior design student. Would it be possible for me to come up with the ideas for that? Want to talk about a portfolio? Who was your first client? The university. What was your first yeah. interior design? The student center. Students are not taught. There's money everywhere. It's called capital. Capital doesn't always have to be green. What about social capital? Excuse me, do you know anyone that lives in my community that graduated from the school who's in the alumni network that is doing what I'm doing as a biomedical engineer? Sure, Valencia, here's a list of all the biomedical engineers that are Black females that live where you live. Right. Maybe you approach one of them and you say, I need an additional $5,000 and I know that you write your taxes off in October. And you would be surprised. Use all of the capital. Like if you've read the work of Yasso, that's a great place to start. Yasso talks about cultural capital. 
Use all of it. Don't just think about the money of the school. Think about the community where you're going. There's capital in that. Think about the linguistic capital. Maybe you speak Yoruba. Maybe you speak, you know, a different dialect that is necessary. Maybe you speak sign language and they need someone to do sign language at the school. Incorporate yourself. Do things differently. Think differently. Don't just think, gosh, you know, I just need this one scholarship. No, you need as many scholarships as possible to come out with a bottom line of zero. I don't care if you apply for 7,000 scholarships and you only get 3,500, 100 here, 1,000 there, 200. Did you come out with zero balance? That's what's so different. Students are just like, okay, well, if I get a good score and I get... I get good grades. I'll get the highest level institutional scholarship. Okay, great. What about all the other miscellaneous expenses? What if you take a car to school and you need an oil change and your tires blow out? There's no scholarship for that. But if you have enough additional income sitting in your account, you don't have to call your parents. Like This is what I see parents when, when they're, they're not really taking the time to explain to students. When you leave home, you are an adult. As far as the college is concerned, your parents cannot call about anything except your bill. They can't even call and see if you're sick. They cannot call your RA and see if you have someone in your room studying with you. They have no authority, no expressed authority. You are an adult. But we don't teach children to make adult-like decisions. So we send them off academically ready, but they're not mature enough. I went to school when I was 15. Do you think anyone cared that I was in a dorm with 24, 25-year-old people and interacting with people of the opposite sex who were in their 30s? As far as those professors were concerned, I was a freshman. Right. So so we have to really empower students to self-actualize a whole lot earlier if you want them to take advantage of the capital that's around them. That can be at any school. I tell people all the time, Someone is an alumni from the school you're attending. Yeah. This uh, sets a completely different benchmark for test prep coaches or test prep companies. You know, instead of asking, okay, you know what, can my kid get into this Ivy College? The question changes to, can my kid graduate debt free, you know, with like zero money to pay back and then focus on next thing in his or her life, which I think seems to be the most is this definitely, you know, uh, this is a mind bending sort of an interaction that I've had with you. Change the perspective. I yeah. told you, my disenchantment is what led to my disruption. I mean, I didn't, I've gotten awards from Wharton Business School, from MIT, from USC, um, from Harvard, because we, like, they're like, why do you think this way? What alternative did I have? My father was like, we we have two children and you all are the oldest cousins in a group of almost 20 cousins. Even if we put all, if we amass all of our money together as a family in the Caribbean, who is going to come up with $5 billion for 20 kids to go to school? Where is it right. supposed to come from? Right. Sometimes but if you can me. kind of, you know, extend this mindset to all of the 20 cousins of yours, <laughs> and then it's a, it's, it's a completely different next generation you're looking so, at. So to give you an example of shift. that, so where I'm from in St. Eustatius, right? The government 
will pay for students to go to school in Holland. But you have to have a, a certain career path because the government is looking at we need this many doctors, we need this many librarians, right. we need this many, you know, and we also need this many skilled workers. So I thought it was very interesting. People were like, well, how did you know what you wanted to be by age 12? Okay, if I looked at my cousins who were back home by age 12, if you had not passed the entrance exam to move into high school, high school was not an option. You had to figure out what right. you were going to do to be gainfully employed. It's right. not like that everywhere, right? So I didn't grow up in an environment where I could waste my time and potential. Right. It wasn't an option. It was, it, it was not an option for me to go take a gap year that lasted seven years to try to find myself. Because who was going to feed me? We don't think about that. When students graduate from K-12 education, you take 10 meals out of their mouth. Who's supposed to replace those? Is that supposed to come back on the on the family or the community? So what are we doing? What, what are we preparing? And if we continue to prepare people globally that way, if you already come from a marginalized community that doesn't have the resources to take care of you, even to afford you to go to K-12 education, how will we be sustainable? The way we do test prep, if you look at the SDG goals, the sustainable developmental goals for the World Health Organization, because I've worked for the NIH and I've worked for clean water and, and done all of these things that came out of test prep. I literally worked on a project with WEF where they were like, how is this even possible that the same issues with water that they're having in this third world country, they're having in the state of Alabama? I was like, because right. marginalization is marginalization. doesn't make a difference where you are globally. But I say all that to say this. If you look at the 17 SDGs, access to a quality education is as important as access to clean water. Right. So why are we giving Absolutely. students a watered down education that is making them sick? and financially dependent. Why, why are we doing that? But um, I'm glad somebody out there is focusing on this and, you know, talking about it and uh, getting other people to know about it. Thank you so much, first of all, Dr. Venetia, for taking your time out and, you know, coming and educating me and all the listeners here. This is uh, an amazing uh, thing for oh, me to have, you, you know, come to have learned thank about. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I had a lot more questions, <laughs> trust me, but this became a podcast on scholarships and I just couldn't go on to those questions because the things that you said, I just had to clarify all those things, right? Like you said, I thought it is better to go and understand one thing deeper than to touch upon so many more topics than, you know, without not going too deep. But, you know, this podcast, I can like title it is, you know, kind of like a scholarships masterclass. So, you know, change the way people look at SAT or ACT and instead of looking at getting into Ivy colleges or whatever, what's more important is to get out the other end without any debt to your name. I think that's key. And um, I'm definitely going to get back to you for a part two to talk about the other stuff that I actually wanted to talk about. 
<laughs> just make sure so, that they understand the purpose of the ships. You understand what I mean now? Yeah. Earning yeah, earning yeah, totally. a full ride scholarship and not knowing the value of it, you can still earn a full ride scholarship and lose it. Because those scholarships yeah. usually have a GPA requirement to keep them. And many of those scholarships are non-renewable. So you could literally be right. a presidential scholar your freshman year. Um, I'll give you an example and, and, and we can close. So many schools have what we call ascending GPA scholarships. So you have to okay. have a 3.25 your freshman year. Right. A 3.5 your sophomore year. A 3.75 your junior year. And then you're accepted. Like they do that for pharmacy school. So then you're early accepted to pharmacy school. So I've seen instances where students had a 3.7 and lost all of their funding because in the junior year, they had to have a 3.750. They made one B. Right. They came up with a 3.7. Now they have no funding for their last year. And they're also not accepted to their graduate program. That student is a student oh. that will not persist to graduation because they have made no plan to replace right. the lifestyle that they had from choosing the wrong ship at the wrong time. That's why like, when I talk to students and I do podcasts about scholarships, it's a very different conversation. I'm like, what ship are you trying to get into? If the goal is for you to be an academic, then you need scholarships that produce articles and publications and opportunities right. for you to present at national conferences. So sometimes it might be better for you to go to a school that is producing, 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 producing written work, as opposed to you going to a school where thought and conversation is more important than production. Because graduating from a school, if, if you want to be a thought leader, then you go to a school where you think a lot. That's not right. focused on scholarships right. for you writing a lot. People don't think about those things. And so they choose the wrong scholarship at the wrong time. What if you decide to change directions? I started off in engineering, then went back and got a nursing degree, and then got a doctorate in education. But I always knew that I would be in social services, healthcare, and education because I didn't splinter myself into three different parts. I was the same person. And I spent a lot of time right. trying to find opportunities where I was like, do not separate this part of me from that part of me. I'm still Valencia, right? So the scholarships that I took for certain things, I realized that at the end of the day, guess who was going to be on the front of their brochure? So was that the scholarship? that I really wanted? Did I really want to be affiliated with this organization for the rest of my life? For money's sake? Maybe, maybe not. And many times because of the way students go about their scholarship search, they pigeonhole themselves. And so when they start to self-evolve and they realize that's not really what they want to do, they didn't get general scholarships. They got scholarships just for engineering, and now they want to be in education, so they've lost all of the scholarships they applied for. They didn't apply for scholarships that had to do with content creation or had to do with them just being a great leader, which are universal traits that are also worth capital. If you only go for what you know, what happens when you change what you know? So yeah, yeah, the scholarship conversation is 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 a deep one for me with my students because once they've gotten, I mean, they they don't have a problem with getting to zero. 
my question is, as an alumni of this institution, how, how are you changing the trajectory of this institution? Yeah. When you graduate, when they say your name, what will it stand for? Those are the types of scholarships you need to apply for. It is a given that you're going to school for free. We've already gotten the score and the GPA for the institutional scholarship. Right. But when you're talking about these additional streams of income, then I need you to think about who are you five years from now? What does it look like? Are you going to be the owner of a podcast? Why are you not looking for scholarships that allow you to start that podcast when you're a freshman in college, as opposed to when you graduate and become an adult 30 years later? Who are you as a person? We don't ask these questions of students. And so by the time they start to ask those questions of themselves, unfortunately, they could have already graduated with or without debt, but they haven't self-actualized. So they're still trying to figure out who they are. It's the dentist who really didn't want to be a dentist, but they graduated and they're in dentistry. And you can tell they don't like teeth and they only like being a dentist, but they did it anyway because it was expected of them. Or you could see someone who's not making hardly any money as a teacher, but they are in the middle of their why, like Chickamahaya, and they are just flowing out of what they want to do. And you're like, I want to be just like that person. I don't even care if they make $20,000 a year because they are happy and fulfilled in what yeah. they're doing. And that's what we're missing with education in and of itself. Are we teaching children to truly learn about themselves and about how they contribute back to society? Or have we just dummied down education to these metrics where if you meet this metric, then that gives you some kind of value? In life, there are only value producers and value consumers. If we keep putting out consumers, the creativity is going to be gone. The innovation is going to be gone. What's going to happen to us yeah. as a humankind? Scholarships is definitely start of something like deep and huge. And it just, yeah, totally. Uh, and thank you so much, uh, Dr. Valencia, uh, for this lovely conversation. And uh, as I said, I'm going to, uh, you know, hit you up again <laughs> to maybe for another episode. Absolutely. And, you know, talk about a lot of other yeah and um it was a pleasure having you and uh learning so much about scholarships i'm going to do some research myself and see how many others talk about scholarships the way that you did today because i maybe had a, one or two who did speak about scholarships and you know who spoke about uh parents or students not being aware of certain scholarships but not to this depth but not from this perspective and not from this narrative about, you know, how about graduating with zero debt, I think, which is the most important yeah. thing. And uh, when non-Americans uh, learn about American students graduating, one of the things that come is how much of student debts that all these people are in when they, you know, start working. So it all makes sense now to me. Well, for uh, international you know, students, many they, of the colleges make them fill out a form that says that they can personally pay for school with or without scholarship. That's a part of their application process now. Oh, right. Wow. Especially okay. for the Ivy League schools, they will say to attend this school costs $650,000. Show us that you have the ability Great. to self-fund because they are not eligible for any USA. For scholarships? They're not eligible for aid. All oh, right. Okay. So think about this. They don't care about you being eligible for scholarships. Mm. They're like, if you move to this country and it does not work out for you academically, 
and you don't keep right. your scholarship 3.5 and you're not a U.S. student, like a U.S. citizen, how citizen. are you going right, to continue right, right. to maintain being a student at $90,000? Because see, after the first semester, you, you spent 45000 and you didn't keep the 3.5. So in the spring, you're on academic probation. So we don't give you the scholarship for the spring. You lost it, but you're still here. Right. And you still have to have housing and you still have to eat. And they're like, can your family pay for it? So they make you sign those disclaimer forms up front. Right. And many times if the if the international student cannot sign the disclaimer, admission is denied. Wow. Yeah. So that's okay. a whole nother whole other equity conversation. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Melissa. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system, and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.